suicide is not the answer. Life is a gift that we should cherish. And although you may be going through really difficult, difficult, challenging times, you can work through this. Welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast with Hugo and Dahlia, two cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of others. Nothing is off limits, so prepare yourself for tears, laughter, and goosebumps. And Dahlia talking about poo. (laughs) (laughs) Hello everyone, I'm Hugo, and today I'm doing a solo episode without Dahlia, who's recovering pretty well from surgery. And today I sat down with an amazing woman called Maria Bach. And Maria lost her son, Peter, to suicide when he was just 22 years old. Pete also happened to be one of my best mates. And over the years, Maria and I have had a pretty special relationship. And being a pallbearer at Pete's funeral is still one of the most emotional things I've ever done in my entire life and something that I'll definitely always remember. So look, today's episode is definitely more of an emotional episode. But at the same time, it's quite a powerful episode because it is quite prevalent in some of the topics we do discuss, uh, which is centered around sort of mental health and the alarming statistics around suicide itself. So look, Peter was gay. uh, And although he had come out, uh, he always struggled to accept himself. So Maria does talk about the difficulties with young men coming out, but also what it's like as a mother to lose her son to suicide. And she also discusses how everyone grieves differently. And then we talk about the amazing work she's now doing as a result of what she's gone through with an amazing foundation she started called the White Bear Foundation. So look, hopefully you do take something away from today's episode because Maria is an amazing woman who has gone through so much in her life. And before all of this tragedy struck, she's, uh, she's also been a trainer for Tony Robbins for, for over 15 years. So she's got a wealth of knowledge and I look up to her and she's an amazing role model to me and I really enjoyed my time sitting down with her and talking about some pretty intimate details in her life but like I said with the end goal of hopefully making a difference to people listening and creating that ripple effect and normalizing the discussions surrounding mental health. And before we get into the episode I might just quickly add that if you are struggling or if you know someone close to you who is struggling please never hesitate to reach out and get support. There is always support out there. There are always many avenues to get that support and just realize that you're not alone. Uh, I'll also list some links to some support networks such as Lifeline uh, in the bio or the description of this episode. So once again, everyone, thanks for the continual support and enjoy the episode. Maria Bach, thank you very much for having me into your lovely home and welcome to the 25 Sailor podcast. Thank you, Hugo. It's great to uh, be here. Yeah, no, I've been uh, wanting to, to get you on the show for quite a while, actually, just because I think uh, obviously what we're going to cover off today is obviously very prevalent, but also because what you've been doing now with, with the foundation, the White Bear Foundation is uh, amazing and we will, uh, we will definitely cover off on that. Uh, but look, I think before we do get into the uh, those details of of what you're doing now, Maria. Let's talk about Pete. And obviously today's episode is centered around Pete, your your son and, and you know my best mate going through my army training. But what was Pete like growing up? You know, what are the what are some of the, yeah. the things that stand out most for you? I think most people would remember Pete even as a child, he was a very tall boy. He was very big. 
Count, um, sorry, just so for the, the listeners uh, well, getting an appreciation yeah. of that. He, how tall was well, he? As an adult, six foot eight and size sixteen shoe. So <laughs> yeah, he was he was massive. So even as a little boy in grade one or two, he was the tallest boy mm. in the in the class. He was a very kind, caring little boy, and he just seemed to win everybody's heart. And mm. uh, one day, I think he was in grade one or two. Uh, one of the uh, relief teachers sent a note home just in his lunchbox so I could notice it washing the lunchbox up at yeah. night and and it just said, Mrs. Bark, if I could clone Peter, I would keep on teaching forever. Oh, that's sweet. He just, he was very curious, but he seemed to be there for everybody. He had piercing brown eyes, so he'd sort of, he'd sort of win you over. Yeah, he was, he, he was a charmer. Big, he was just lovely, <laughs> lovely smile, very natural, so... Yeah. He was very well loved. I know when I met him, he had such a passion for things like music and, mm. and some of his kind of, mm. his passions in life. I guess, what was it? What was he like when he was a bit younger going through school? Did he have some of those passions? Well, he loved his music and that mm. probably started in those teenage years right yep. through. With his sport that he played, um, he was not in the A's and B's, but he would always seem to be awarded with the best and fairest player or the leadership award or being there for the team or the, the, the inspi- team player yeah, inspiring yeah. the teams also when you go away to school camp most kids would take away sort of comics or easy books to read pete i'd send him magazines on science and yeah. politics and- yeah. did he always have a passion for the military or the navy when kind of was it that he said you know what i really want to join join the navy he started uni um, doing business degree after high school and it was after the first year he decided to follow um, his father's footsteps because mm-hmm. his father was in the Defence Force as a pilot. Pete was too tall to be a pilot so that was <laughs> out of the question and uh, he decided to join the Navy so he joined at the age of 19 and okay. and did officers training first. It's a, is it six months or 12 months before? 12 months. He went to HMAS Creswell Creswell, down at Jarvis Bay and did six months of officers training and then they go out on ships, which he did, and he he loved it and he excelled and um, achieved both at ADFA and also at um, Creswell Commandant's Commendation for Leadership. Well, then that's, I suppose that's where it's coming into Mm. To my uh, my friendship with, with mm. Pete was when I first met him after Creswell mm. uh, when he joined ADFA. Mm. And for those who don't know, ADFA is the Australian Defence Force Academy. Mm. And very, very early on, we, we built this very strong connection. And I think it was a special friendship. Um, and now, Maria, I suppose on that, his early ADFA days, what was he like, you know, whilst he was in the Navy and at ADFA when obviously you saw him? He, ex- he excelled. Commandant's Commendation Leadership, awards for academic studies. He rowed at ADFA as well. He was a good rower. Yeah, very good at rowing. So much so that they've named a skull after him, Midshipman Pete Bark. Pete is also on the Wall of Honour at ADFA. Very special. So for two years, excelled, did extremely well. Um, Academic studies, leadership awards rode and seemed to be really happy, was really looking forward to getting out and furthering his career. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, I, I've had very, I have fond memories of Pete uh, at ADFA. And look, one of the, the memories I have, which is obviously a very prominent memory, and I suppose it's something that we'll, we'll touch on now, is that when he first came out, um, mm. so obviously that was, I understand, whilst he was at ADFA, do you just want to explain when he first came out mm. that he was gay mm. to you? And I suppose, 
as a mother what that was what that was like for you mm. um do you just want to kind of explain or when that was as well as a family we would regularly go down to adfa for rowing when the rowing championships were on and also once a year at the early part of the year they have the defense force parade the chief mm. of the defense force parade so we'd go down there and see pete march and well, all the cadets marching and it was would have been 2011 a year before he passed away we all went out to dinner. Um, it's myself, uh, Pete, and his brother and sister are out to dinner. And he'd already told his elder brother, which wasn't an issue. And he sat down and when we were sitting down, he said, I have something very important I want to tell you. And he just said that I am bisexual. And it's very common for, apparently I've been told, it's very common for gay people or gay, gay men to say that they're bisexual initially to cushion the blow for parents and friends. Yeah. You could have knocked me off the chair. Not that I'm opposed to people being gay. Not at all. You know, your child is your child. You love your child Mm. no matter what. It was more that I was shocked because I had no idea, no inkling. I, at the time, no signs. Although over the last seven years, I've looked back and there are a few signs that I notice now. I remember going home because we stayed down there for the weekend that night and just laying awake all night, just searched on Google, you know, why are children gay? Why are they bisexual? I was just trying to understand as a mother, was it something I did when Pete was growing up? Was it something perhaps, you know, being influenced in a a household with, you know, a mother and his sister and, and not having, dad and I were divorced and... And so I lay awake all night just Googling, Googling. And the next day we went to breakfast like we did. And, you know, Pete met us and uh, he said, oh, mum, can I borrow your phone? Of course, I handed it over thinking he'd want to ring one of his mates or look up an address or something. It was about half an hour later we were leaving the cafe and he just put his arm around me and hugged me and said, mum, you've done nothing wrong. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I looked at your phone. He said, I knew, uh, I knew that you would look at, you would be you know, searching on your phone. Oh, wow. And I thought at the time, what a beautiful, what a beautiful boy. Um, he was thinking more about me and what was going through my yeah, mind and yeah. whether I was going to blame myself rather than yeah. what was going on in his mind. So he kind of reassured yeah. you, kind of saying, yeah. look, it's not you, <laughs> it's me, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a special mm-hmm. thing to do, mm-hmm. isn't it? And coming out from what I've learnt as well, it's, it is a very difficult time for people that, again, you know, I'm only talking about my son, obviously, here. It is a very difficult time being accepted by other people, mm. family, friends, the community. But probably from what I've learned in Pete's situation, it's really accepting yourself. Yeah. He could not accept being gay and again this is what I believe and from what I've learnt and it's very difficult living where you don't accept yourself yeah look it is it is obviously a a powerful moment for exactly that and it is interesting hearing you say that was your I guess experience when he came out to you and for me it was um, I remember when he came out to me and I was one of the only I was one of the first people he told as far as his friends because like you said it can be quite a daunting situation especially being in a a military environment uh, to come out so he was clearly apprehensive on on what people would think of him 
And I remember he uh, he knew that my uncle was gay. And so I remember we uh, we went out for a drink one night and he I was there with a couple other close mates. And I remember he said to me, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, uh, Hugo, he's like, so I've got something to tell you, mate. You know your uncle? I'm like, yeah, yeah, Uncle Pete. Uh, also Pete. And he said, um, so your uncle and... Uh, your uncle and I have a bit more in common than you probably think. And I said, okay, well, what, are, what, are you, what are you getting at there? I kind of knew what he was going to get at. And he goes, yeah, yeah, so, so I'm gay. And I kind of said, okay, cool, you know, <laughs> no worries. Like, well, you're, around, you're around next, mate, you know, you still, still owe me a drink. So it was one of those things where it didn't change me in the slightest, but it was just for him and for a lot of people listening who come out, it's such a daunting prospect to actually that situation. But when he told me and then when he started telling other friends and he got to the stage where basically he told everyone and, and, you know, word of mouth and then everyone had had for, you know, the thousand or so people knew, no one actually cared that he was gay because he was still Pete Bark. Mm-hmm. But I think he didn't realise that at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's um, a memory that I'll always, always hold fond, um, I suppose, when he actually did come out. It was about a year later we would talk and I for a year I thought he's bisexual and as a mother think well life can be challenging enough um being bisexual and I did speak to one or two gay people that I knew and and asked you know their advice and their thoughts and they said it can be difficult being bisexual and so my thoughts for that year until Peter confirmed that he was gay was how does he know where he was you know it must be really confusing and and after a year he said to me oh no mum I just said that just to cushion the blow he said I'm gay Mm. not not bisexual and I thought well goodness good now we know now we know that's a good point and I said to him look I don't care Pete what you are how could I or any mother love their son less Mm. they are our children to the day that we die and sadly, you know, when your child dies before you, mm. which is not normal, mm. but you cannot not love your child regardless. Mm. And I made that very clear. And I remember the day we just hugged each other and I said, well, look, I look forward to the day you bring your partner home. You yeah, know, as exactly long as, right. as long as you're happy, you bring your partner home. I think on that, it's it's one of those things I think I noticed in, in Pete when he came out, he felt it almost a sense of relief mm. that everyone kind of knew he was gay now. And it's kind of, he didn't, it, almost like he wasn't hiding behind that. Mm. And I felt like he was in a really good place from coming out, which was great. But obviously, like you said before, it's, it's something that you, he obviously never really accepted himself mm. as being gay, which is the difficult part. I, I did ask him, who have you told it out? He said, oh, I've told a lot of people now and all my friends know. And I said, how have they reacted? He said, fine. Mm. He said, fine. He did say that there were some cadets at Adfer that had told family members that were ostracised and that really saddened him. And I hear that today mm. as well, that family, friends, you know, don't talk to their children again and they can't accept it for whatever reason. And I'm not here to judge, but I find it so difficult to comprehend how you could not accept a child for who they are and I know this is my belief and people could argue the point with me but your child is your child you're a parent you love them and that really saddened Pete and I suppose now deep down that really worried him yeah and that's it's just it's devastating to hear that and it seems to be um I've got I've got a couple um very good close gay friends of mine and I've you know spoken to, to to them and I know they've struggled a lot throughout their um their life uh, i know i just mentioned my uncle before he he struggled a lot it's 
you know, the prevalence of those who are going through the reality of being gay, and that's just who they are, but also struggling with their mental health, it seems to be quite strongly linked. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that is that the um, those who are gay and struggling with their mental health, um, how, how do you, or how have you found that from your, from people you've, I guess, spoken to over, over the years? My advice and suggestion with people who are, are struggling, suicide isn't the answer. Besides the tragedy that you leave behind with family and friends dealing with this, that is there forever, you can get help. And if you go to one person and that person isn't the right person, you don't feel comfortable, go to another person. Mm. You know, it's been said that your family are the most supportive and the best people that you can get get help from where Mm. you're in a loving environment with people that know you. Now, I know in some cases if there's an estranged family, that's not the case, but you go to your family first if you you have a, a relationship with them and have that trust there it's also about being extremely vulnerable because you know from what i've learned again you know you go through the anxiety then comes the stress and the anxiety and then the d- depression then it's like a slippery mm. slope and then the suicide ideation and there's so many times that people attempt their life knowing that they're not actually going to succeed but it's a it's a cry for help and to me this is the time that they need the most help yeah again from when Pete took his life by the time he decided to take his life it was he was very calm about it and you hear this often and it's almost like that's when it's too late mm-hmm. when people are depressed and people are have suicide ideation or people are attempting their life and not being successful this is the time that we need to listen this is the time that we need to help people this is the time that you take it upon yourself if you hear or see of anyone like this to do whatever it takes even if it means losing that friend if it's a true friend it'll only be temporary anyway yeah and it's it's First of all, very powerful to hear you say that. And I think it's for those listening uh, who might be struggling themselves or they've got a family member or a loved one or someone close to them who might be struggling. It is one of those things that, you know, you're not alone and there is the support out there. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, Maria, it's it, that might be with family. It might be with medical help, psychologists, mm-hmm. etc. But also know that there is multiple avenues to do it. There's, you know, and that, that's the important part to note. And I suppose on that, Marie, when you when you touched on, you know, I guess more to do with Pete, did you personally notice any signs um, that he was depressed or like, I suppose, when were there any things along the way that you thought that he was struggling a bit, like as a mother? He would come home a few times during the year um, when it was holidays, holidays from ADFA or from university. Once he came home, and he was meeting up with his mates, his his churchy mates, and having a drink. And it was the bar that, or the hotel that he was going at, was quite a ways to drive. So I drove him there, and I said, "Look, depending on what time you finish, because sometimes you know one bar will lead on to the next, and you know with young people yep. clubbing." And yeah, I said, absolutely. "I said, give me a call if it's not too late. I'll come and pick you up, save a taxi ride home." 
and uh, he rang me and I picked him up. It was probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock and I picked him up. We were driving. He'd, he'd had a lot to drink and he was sitting there and I don't know how the conversation started, but he just, he made a comment. He said, Mum, I'm so unhappy and I just want to be happy. But he was very drunk when he said it and and then he was just quiet and he was sort of a bit asleep as well and I didn't persevere and I thought tomorrow I'm going to discuss that with him because I thought now's not the time he's mm. sort of drunk he's asleep and so the next day when it was appropriate I brought it up he said he just joked and brushed it off he said oh mum you say silly things you know how you say things when you're drunk yeah 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 and that has been one very big regret that I didn't persevere when he was drunk he may have then opened up and talk to me and when you lose somebody and suicide that just doesn't make sense and I'm not saying that suicide is any worse than any other death where a parent loses a child but with suicide there are so many what ifs what ifs and what ifs and I could have done this and I could have done that another time I noticed that he seemed very agitated and impatient and we were going to go to the movies and we had enough time to get there, but he wanted to leave now and get there really quickly to go to the movie. And I've since learnt that he used to take himself off to the movies at Adfa because it was his way of just closing off and sort of being mesmerised by what's on screen, not thinking about his life and what's going on. Well, it's interesting you say that, Maureen. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of my many fond memories of Pete was cinema and was movies and we actually shared a very special connection with that and I remember early days Adfa he always got me into movies and we shared a very special connection with that and quite often just the two of us would go to movies together because yeah I think it was a bit of that um, maybe you know a bit of that escapism where you're kind of living that movie for a bit Uh, but you know I'll always remember you know strong memories with Pete and the movies he, uh, he used to recommend me and I've still got a few very close to my heart that every time I watch it to this day, you know, it reminds me of Pete. But it's interesting you say that though, Maria, when you said that one of the regrets you have, and I think it's especially early on that the, the, the natural instinct to have those regrets and what could have I done. And I remember, you know, very clearly I had similar things as a, a close best mate, the similar things of what could have I done. And, and you know what, when you're talking about the signs and symptoms, look, they were there at ADFA, but, you know, I think I'm at least comfortable in knowing that we did, when I say we as close friendship group did get around him, we did make sure he had the support and there were many occasions where we were there for him, um, which I think was important for me to really realise that, that we actually were there for him um, because it is easy to go down that slippery slope to think what could have I done more. I suppose moving on then, you know, without go, obviously going into too much detail uh, at all, because obviously it's a very uh, traumatic experience. And But that fateful day, 26th of July 2012, when he did end his own life, you know, obviously it's it's a day that you'll never forget, um, of course. But once again, without going into too much detail of, of the incident itself, more so just so people listening can kind of have an appreciation of what it was like mm. as a mother to find that out or to hear that and I suppose what what it was like for you it was the next day it would have been the 27th and about one in the morning and there was a knock at the door I went out and opened the door and saw a high-ranking navy officer I can't remember who it was but there was also the chaplain Mm. and I saw the cross on his collar and they said Mrs Bark And I remember saying, my son is dead. 
and they said yes. And you never forget that moment. We were then told to ring the commandant from ADFA and I truly believed that they were going to tell me that Peter had had an accident, you know, because accidents mm. happen, whether it was a car crash or... But still, I had no idea that he'd been suffering depression and, and I had no reason to believe that he had taken his life. Mm. And it's, you know, I think it's not obviously being a parent myself, but, you know, it's one of the, the, the worst things imaginable, obviously, as a mother or father to, to lose, obviously, a child in any way. But like you mentioned before, to suicide is one of those things where it's just, it's just such a devastating way, obviously, as a mother. And I just hearing you, hearing you say that, um, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what to say to that because it's just such a something that obviously no one ever wants to experience. Um, and look, it was one of those things where I think everyone will remember that we're close to Pete for the rest of their lives. But I suppose for me, one of the most powerful moments was actually this uh, funeral itself at ADFA and for me being a pallbearer and I remember slow marching down probably a hundred meter road and there were probably close to 1500 people lining the streets, trainees, staff and slow marching this coffin whilst all his fellow friends and, and those who were close to him were saluting as we went past. It was just such a powerful moment and to just see how many people's lives he had affected, but also I think to realise how how close he was to so many people, and I think it's one of those things where if Pete knew that and he was there to see how many people actually loved him mm-hmm. and how many people were there for him, you know, it's one of those things that you wish he was there to see that. Um, but it was a powerful moment that doesn't matter what I do in my life from now on. I'll always remember that powerful moment. I think it's it's a yeah a thing that will always be in my memory. As sad as the service was, it was a very special service. There was so much love by everyone that attended, and leading up to the service, being a full military service, we were informed that we would be responsible for the afternoon tea. Mm. And um, I said, well, okay. Um, And they said, well, ADFA has catering for me to ring. So I rang this number that I was given and I said to the lady there, I said, look, hello, I'm Mrs. Bark and you don't know me, but I'm just ringing up to get costs for the catering. She said, I I know of you. And I said, I do you? She said, yes. Mm. She said, I said, therefore you knew my son, Peter. She said, everyone knew Peter. Everyone did know Peter. Everyone knew Peter. She said, I've been here for years. This lady, I don't know her name. She's in charge of the mess or catering. She said, I've been here for years. And Peter's someone that stands out. So whenever he came into the the canteen or he'd always say, no matter who it was, whether it was the cook or someone waiting on the tables or cleaning, how's your day going? How are you? Hello. And he'd always welcome and make people feel great. And that was really lovely to hear. And I said, look, I've rung up to get a quote on the catering. And I said, I have no idea of numbers. And she said, there's probably going to be about 1,500 to 2,000 people. And I thought, wow, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, this could be very interesting afternoon tea. Yeah. 
And she said, but I'll check prices and things. I said, okay, well, I'll ring back tomorrow. So I rang back the next day and, you know, said who it was. And and I said, what will the cost be? You know, I'm quite happy to pay whatever it it was going to be. And she said, no charge. And I said, why no charge? She said, because all the cadets have money taken out of their wage regularly and they put it into like a a mess um, account. account. Yeah, yeah. Yep at the end of the year yeah, celebration yeah. and all the cadets at ABFA are paying for the afternoon tea because mm. they all just cared so much and respected Pete yeah and that just just really touched me it was just such a beautiful gesture which we acknowledged mm. on the day as well no it's a, yeah and hearing those types of memories it's it's very special. And first of all, just thank you for, I guess, those details. Before I know it's obviously extremely difficult for you to, to relive that. But the grieving part of that, what was it like initially as a mother to grieve losing your son to suicide? Mm-hmm. And then over your seven-year journey, how have you found the lessons you've learnt with grieving? And I goes, I guess, for, for the listeners who you know might have experienced anything similar or might be going through something similar, what are some some things you've learned that could you could pass on there's no wrong way to grieve everybody grieves differently i believe unless a person is harming themselves then obviously that's not right and they need they need help and support the human body is quite incredible for me it's almost like i went into shock which then it's it's a numbness and a dullness that you don't realise the magnitude of what has actually happened initially. This helps me to get through planning a service and dealing with losing a child and, and all the, the legal side of it, supporting the family and friends. So it's like a numbness. It's To me, it's like being on a drug, although I wasn't on any drugs Mm. it was like I was sort of spaced out and and it's quite incredible the human body to deal with something like that and what 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 did you find helped you the most Um, I suppose well I went after about six or eight weeks I did go to Lifeline they had a suicide bereavement group that met weekly and that was very supportful and there was a six-week course that I did with similar family friends of uh, people that had lost somebody to suicide that was excellent um, having friends around which is great friends that realize that it's not only the short term there are so many people in the beginning that want to help and want to be there to support you but life is so busy organizing mm. things and adjusting but it's the friends that are around for the long haul it is the friends that would come up and say how can I help you or for me the best thing was someone saying look I don't really know what to say I don't know what to do you know you tell me how you'd like me to Mm. to approach this but it's better than not saying anything it's like there's a big elephant in the room with death or particularly suicide no one wants to talk about suicide And so therefore your loved one is not mentioned and it's like it's sort of not happened, but that elephant's in the room. And then other people, people that would say, is it okay for me to talk about Pete? Would you like to talk about Pete? And that's just 
refreshing. I know some people have to block out. The yeah. only way they can deal with the pain, and this is for years, is to not talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And to me, that might be initially a way to, to deal with the situation, but long term, it's not healthy because it's eating away at them and they're blocking it out. Of course. And it's it's like there's something bigger manifesting there mm. to, to surface. And again, I'm only talking from my own personal experience, but I know people that do block it out long, long term. Yeah. They're dealing with it and it's not a healthy yeah. way. And I know recently, Marie, you, you when I came to visit you and you said that some of the clothes of Peach, you know, mm. even after seven years mm. or six, seven years, you've been keeping on hold of because it's so so difficult, which mm. I can completely understand mm. that. But the other day, you you build up the, the strength, if you mm. want to call it that, to part ways with some of Peach's clothes, but you still kept some of his, uh, yeah. his big size 16 <laughs> shoes. Yeah. Everything came home from the Australian Defence Force, and I remember seeing his car, watching his car being delivered, and then, you know, the tow truck dropping it right at the front of the house, and... All his bags came home as well, and and over the the probably the first six years, you know, every few months I'd go down and I'd start to unpack, mm. and and I was warned by the defence force that when his things came home, that they, they're not washed. So if there are clothes that are dirty, you will smell that perspiration that on the clothes, and and you do. Wow. And I'd unzip the bag and I'd. And you know, being honest here, I'd take that shirt out and I would smell it, which yeah. would be Pete's odour, good, bad or indifferent. Doesn't matter, yeah. And I would just hug that and I'd just hang on to that. And it took six years, um, it was only a year ago that I actually, I unpacked everything, I washed everything because now it smells all musty. I washed it all and packed it and I rang up somebody that I knew in a church that would be able to give it to people that really needed the clothes and I did keep just a few items and one was you know size 16 pair of shoes that just a massive and (laughs) just a few items you've still got the big uh big bear that he's got yeah um you went what there's a big similar to a big garbage bag but this massive big bag came home it was an orange bag I think from Adfa and it was really big and it was soft and I thought oh what is all this besides all the you know, 100-odd socks that you'd, you'd yeah. found. <laughs> yeah. There was this massive big soft thing, and I undid it, and there was this bear. Peter saw this bear, and he had never seen a bear as big as his body. Yeah. So he it, had to it, buy it. literally is as, yeah. as big as a human body, and yeah, it's a yeah, big body yeah. too. And so that came home, and I eventually found out that it was called Kirk. And so it's been amazing over the years how that bear has brought so much love and joy and there was a photo of peter hugging the bear yeah with his heads over the bear's right shoulder and we've done that same hug knowing that pete was hugging at yeah. the same spot but you know over the years we bought joy it's it sat at the dinner table it's we put it on a bicycle as if it had taken lots of photos and we did this for a few years you know the the bear's sitting at the table with the yep. glasses on, typing or having a drink with Pete's brother's mates out in the veranda, you so know, having a beer. Almost like a special part of the family it now, is, Kurt. It is, it is, Kirk. And it, it's been it's been wonderful yeah. having that bear here. And 
other people going through a similar situation they may have some object or toy and as silly as it may sound to people it has been a great source of support well and and on that i think it's it's a good segue leading into it maria is i think it's almost the symbolism of of this amazing foundation you've Mm. now started Mm. in pete's honor Mm. uh, and through pete and uh and speaking of the big bear that sits proudly Mm. in your living room Mm. it is called the white bear foundation Mm. and um I think what you're doing for this foundation and, and, and helping the lives of these young children uh, is simply inspirational mm. and incredible. And do you just want to explain, I suppose, mm. what the uh, why you started the White Bear mm. Foundation and what the mm. actual White Bear Foundation mm. does? When you lose a child, you can either go one way or the other. You can just go down in a heap, which I did on the odd occasion. Picked myself up very quickly um, through my years of personal development thankfully I have learnt to ask myself better questions and do better things and and then I thought what could I start and I've had a passion for leadership all of my life and so I started the White Bear Foundation in honour of Peter we have weekend workshops and we're predominantly based in Brisbane but we do these weekend workshops under the umbrella of leadership and we work with 7 to 12, 12, Mm -hmm. 13-year-old children. And it's over a weekend, and it's about building up their resilience, not only now, but for high school and for the years beyond, and teach them better communication skills and build up their self-esteem. Or kids just come along because they might be leaders in their school to learn more effective leadership skills. So we have children that come along from various backgrounds and we play games, we, uh, we support children, but more importantly, we teach children to appreciate and love themselves. I love that. I and love that. not to look at someone else for acceptance, accept who you are, because at the end of the day, it's by accepting who you are, it's going to allow you to get through those difficult times. And you know what? That's so powerful, Maria. Like having learning, accepting who you are, and teaching that to to people, like you said, from seven years of age to twelve, as young children, teaching them those core values of loving themselves. I think just so powerful. I think that is just going to have that ripple effect. Is as they grow older and they have that belief of themselves and loving themselves, they're going to impart that on other people. I think you know ultimately as cliche as it sounds, the world will be a better place mm. if people can ultimately realise mm. that they matter mm. and it's inside them that, that mm. truly matters mm. and, and learning to love themselves. Mm. And I think that's amazing that what you've gone through and you've now created this foundation, like you said, in, in Pete's honour, mm. to help other young children going through anything in life but to learn about themselves mm. is is amazing. And I am um, I love following your journey with the foundation. I'm a big supporter of the foundation and and uh, I remember there was a, a moment last year at the annual trivia night you did, and there was a, a lovely young girl that came up, and she was one of the, the graduates, I think, from the, one of the workshops. And she came up and very proudly spoke in front of the, the audience and, and how much the foundations helped her with her confidence and growth. And, and, and seeing that was a really, I had a few tears in my eyes watching it actually, because it was, it was really just amazing to see that here's someone who's, who's gone through it, not even knowing her, but to see um, how much she's obviously grown. and. And uh, you must feel so proud. I'm sure Pete's watching down, uh, very proud of his mum with the foundation that you've created, Maria. Well, that that young girl, uh, three years before, came to a workshop. She was 
she was very quiet very shy she sat there the whole time and didn't talk at all but enjoyed the weekend she played the game she participated she came back the next workshop and started asking a few questions so three years down the track she's gone from being a cub to now a senior leader yeah. cub she speaks in front of large groups and is the spokesperson she's actually our first child on the committee as well i love yeah. that some of the things you're, you're teaching there hopefully it will change a lot of the the normalizing the conversation around mental health which i think is important for people you know growing up to realize it's normal to talk about their mental health the statistics with suicide needs to change it's so alarming and the fact that it's the leading cause of death in Australia for people aged 15 to 44, the leading cause of death, and the recent statistics that came out says that every single day in Australia, six men will take their own life every single day. And that doesn't include those who have suicide attempts as well. So it clearly it's just so prevalent at the moment and, and doing what you're doing at the White Bear Foundation, it's such a great grassroots mentality to kind of change that going forward. But, you know, why do you think it is so prevalent? Clearly something needs to change. And I suppose I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, what you've learned from, from your experiences over the last sort of seven years, but also what you're doing at the White Bear Foundation on the prevalence of suicide. There are great organisations like Beyond Blue and Black Dog, etc., that support people when they are depressed or have suicide ideation mm. or sui any suicidal thoughts. So I've decided to take a step back and work with children, hopefully preventing them getting to that stage yes. where they need Beyond Blue and, and um, organise great organisations like that. And with children, it's now considered one of the biggest killers of children, suicide. And mm. and I just cannot comprehend how a 10-year-old, and I've heard as young as even nine, decides to take their life. I hear a lot of it has stemmed from social, social media and bullying. And, and in the, the weekend workshops, we deal with bullying because we all know bullying is only isn't in primary school or high school. Mm. Bullying can be there for the rest of your life. Yep. So we teach children to be able to deal with that as well. I don't know how children get to this stage. The perfect world would be that if everybody respected everyone else and appreciated everyone else there wouldn't be any bullying bullies in schools are in the minority but we give them all the power because kids are fearful of them i've had um, just a mother ring me this week where her 12 year old daughter is being bullied on social media she's now seeing a psychiatrist She's been drinking and taking drugs mm. at, at 12. So where, where does a child learn to mock and laugh and bully somebody because they're perhaps a bit larger than what they are or they mm. are quite large or they have a physical disability or they academically are challenged, let alone somebody that might be gay? Where do children learn? Who do they learn it from? Is it from TV? Is it from their parents? Is it from the community? Yeah. Is it from other kids? School or, yeah. The kids, children, when they're born, they don't have these skills to bully. So they learn it somewhere along the line. And, and I believe as adults in the community, we're responsible in how we mould these children and how we educate these children. Children are very, very vulnerable and, and children are also very 
easily influenced as well. And I think even, you know, not just for children, like any adults or teenagers or anyone, you know, listening to this podcast or anyone you know, it's that same mindset doesn't change. Is that why why do people have to have the need to treat other people differently? I, I was brought up with two very old fashioned rules and I'm sure there are a lot of parents that still teach them today speak as you'd like to be spoken to, treat people as you'd like to be treated as well. And and the number one rule we were brought up with is if you can't say anything nice about somebody, well, then don't open your mouth and say anything at all. You yeah. don't need to. And my gosh, if we all just yeah. practice that, how much better the world would be. No, and I, I love it. And you know what? It's It sounds as simple as that, but unfortunately... It's not as simple as that because clearly, you know, something does need to change. I think what you're doing, Maria, with this foundation and you're you're teaching these young children these core values in life, like I said, for them to then use that in their later years in life, you know, no doubt that will make a significant difference. So I think it's I think it's it, it truly incredible with what you're doing with that foundation and um, you know, like I said, I can't wait to be part of it and follow mm. the journey for Thank you. for many years to come. And, and yeah, you've given a lot of support as well. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I just love what you're doing. Like you said, Pete lives on through it, and I think it's completely. I think it's incredible. So look on that actually. Now what you have learned and what you have gone through, what would you tell a young Pete Bark who was in those darker days? Suicide is not the answer. Life is a gift that we should cherish. And although you may be going through really difficult, difficult, challenging times, you can work through this. Mm. With the support of family and friends and if there are the wrong people there that aren't supporting you, then don't waste your time even trying to get their support. There are a lot of people out there that you can go to and there are a lot of professional people that you can work with. And if you don't feel comfortable with one person and and they might be a fantastic practitioner, Mm. there are many more. But suicide is not the answer. The devastation that suicide leaves behind for family and friends never goes away Mm. you learn to live with it but it never goes away just hearing you say that you know it's as a mother who lost your son seven years ago and and what you've gone through and your grieving process and to kind of come out of that now and speaking to me today and hearing you say that it's once again and i'll keep touching on if, if you know of anyone or you are struggling or you know people are struggling it's it's so important to know and as maria just said then suicide is not the answer and life is a gift and i think i love that that you've just you've said that because it's so true and you're not alone and i think that's the biggest one you're not alone and there will be people out there that will be able to help you and no matter how weak you may feel being vulnerable vulnerability is power absolutely it is strength and its power and by asking for help and if you can see somebody needs help if it means going to somebody to get help for them rather than I don't want to interfere, it's very important to do that. No, absolutely. And we, Maria and I actually just had lunch before before this recording. And uh, and I said to Maria, I said, look, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm currently seeing a psychologist. I said, I still have days where I struggle. I still go through a bit of anxiety and, you know, I'm not, you know, depressed at the moment at all, but I still have days where I struggle. And I personally find seeing a psychologist once a week, once a fortnight helps me. 
And I think showing my vulnerability and showing my emotions important because I think if we can all do that, we can all normalize the conversations around mental health. And we, especially as young men, can show our vulnerable side. I think that will go a long way, a long way in hopefully changing those statistics. And then I might add over the same lunch break, Hugo was just so insightful, I suppose, to say to me because I opened up and said, you know, people look at me as being a, you know, a director of a foundation and owning my own business and doing a lot in personal development. But I still have my days and my moments, particularly just last week when it was the seven year mark and it's always around birthdays or special occasions. I have my moments and and I don't say too much. I don't open up to my children because I don't want to make them feel sad Mm. and as a mother you naturally you want to protect them and and you were great in saying to me that they probably would like to know yeah they would like because i would like to know if any of my children weren't happy i want to know but as a mother you think you're the tower of strength and you have to be invincible and i really loved the way that you said to me they would probably want to help yeah and they would appreciate that absolutely they would no, it's um, absolutely. And I think, you know, on that, over this journey that you've, you've had, and I've obviously been part of that through my own personal relationship with Peter, but I think in the process, we've, we've formed this very special relationship. And obviously, I'm, I'm posted and live in Brisbane at the moment and, and coming over for dinners. But even apart from the physical presence, just over the years with communicating and, and and continually being there for each other, I think, has been a very powerful relationship. And I think it's uh, it's fair to say if Pete was looking down on both of us, he'd probably be proud of obviously you and his mum and what you've done and what ha- what you continue to do. And obviously, you know, I'd like to think he's proud of what I'm doing. And the fact I think he's probably proud of us sitting here today having a chat um, about you know what we're talking about. He was such a, a people's person and there for everyone else, and that came out as well after losing him. That no matter what was happening in his life, he was always still there for all of his friends and he definitely would be uh, very touched at the two of us, the work that you do through 25 Stay Alive Mm. and with the the white White bear. And look, I suppose, you know, we'll we'll look to finish things up shortly. Um, I'm sure we'll, uh, you know, we could probably chat hours about some Mm. of Pete's reminiscing about funny stories (laughs) and and, um, some of the more memorable times we've, you know, you've had with him and and I've been lucky enough to share with him. But I might just quickly ask you, you've recently done the Kokoda Trek or the Kokoda Trail. Yeah. And... I believe you you did that more so through Pete as well, uh, because mm. I know Pete was always mm. keen to mm. to do yeah. it. Do you just mm. want to explain? Um, I guess what <laughs> what it was like doing the yeah. go to trail. I've, it's always been a bucket list thing for me. Yeah. Well, when all his things came home from Adfa, I noticed that there was a a brochure and there was some notes and things where he was considering doing Kokoda. It was something that I'd thought about for many years. So three months ago, you know, I did Kokoda, which was in New Guinea, and uh, trained for six or seven months and amazing. never never trekked before. So <laughs> amazing. I went straight into it. It was the most amazing event. It was in honour of Peter and something that. I wanted to do for him and also create awareness for the mm. White Bear Foundation and ultimately reduce suicide out there with our children. Two of the, my outcomes was to learn more about leadership and more about resilience. Yeah. 
um, because this is what we teach in our workshops, yeah. so it wouldn't hurt me to learn that. And I, I remember my dad was great on quotes. He used to say, be careful for what you wish for, it may come true. <laughs> and what, what happened, Maria? <laughs> well, this, the morning, the second morning after, it's 100 kilometres Kokoda, and um, we've done about five or seven first day the second morning I severely sprained my ankle so I did 93 kilometers with <laughs> on prescribed uh. anti-inflammatories and pain relief did the whole of Kokoda which was very very an amazing trek with the history and you know Pete was with me the whole time and I'm planning on doing another trek and it will always still be in honour of Pete and, and to create more awareness for the foundation. Well, it's uh, like you said, be careful what you wish for. It's almost like life said, yeah. well, you want to you want to test resilience, Maria? I'm going to yeah. give you a sprained ankle just to really put that to the test. Yeah. But it is it is amazing. And look, it's it could almost add to your your overall life journey in a way and what, what you've what you've done and on that I'm interested to ask you you know where to now I suppose for Maria Bach and and you know touching on what you've just done with Kokoda and and you know further treks in the Mount Everest base camp you want to do and everything you want to do with the foundation continue mm-hmm. to grow that mm-hmm. and you know you're doing pretty incredible things mm-hmm. and like I said Pete will always be around and and no doubt be so proud of you um you know have you thought about even writing a book uh, <laughs> what's um, the um, yes, I have thought for quite a few years writing a book and it would always be a, a book that would help parents raising children mm. and but it would be a compilation of what I will le- what I have learned over the years and what I will learn from having the White Bear Foundation and working with children at the events. So that's something that um, is certainly not in the immediate future, yeah, but, but it's something that I will do, and I've thought about it for quite a few years now. Well, you've got you've got so much uh, mm. so much to impart on so yes. many people with yes. with your knowledge, but also your own life mm. experiences, which I think is fantastic. And obviously, the uh, the book writing runs in the family because uh, I know even through my ad for days, Pete was always the one who I wanted to be my partner for for essays and projects and all mm. of that because he was such a good writer and he was mm. always so talented at that. Mm. And then. Um, he actually wrote his own book, which you published after he, he passed away. Um, do you just want to quickly touch on that yep, as well? So the Strange Adventures of Charles P. Dalwell by Pete. The book is humorous. It can be read from anyone from ages 10 to 100. Mm-hmm. Pete loved history, politics and philosophy. So it's a really good read. Someone 10 to 12 reading it would just see the very funny side of it someone a little bit older, it's meaningful, there's messages all yeah. the way through it about life. Very clever um, in that way, yeah, isn't there, it? It's an extremely clever book. And from what I've learned as well, it was something that Peter wanted to give back and add humour into people's lives. And so, you know, that book, which is a plug for the foundation, if you wish to purchase it, you can purchase it through the White Bear Foundation. Yeah, no, absolutely. We will, yeah. uh, we will put... Uh, put links to the foundation yeah. and all the amazing work Maria does for the White Bear Foundation and uh, we will put a, a link to that book because I have read it and it is a it is a fantastic book and it is classic Pete humour but uh, like with some little hidden messages in there and I think it's a beautiful testament to what Pete was so passionate and writing was one of those things but look thanks so much again for inviting me into your home and letting me talk about obviously a very emotional and personal part of your life and to share it with me i really do appreciate that and you inspire me and if anything you're an amazing role model to someone like myself thank you thank you Hugo. you've been listening to the 25 stay alive podcast subscribe on itunes or spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes 
follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25StayAlive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.